Okay, so we're in Judges uh, chapter 8, the whole of the chapter. And starting at verse 1. Now the Ephraimites asked Gideon, why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they challenged him vigorously. But he answered them, what have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleaning of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abiza? God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, their resentment against him subsided. Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Succoth, Give my troops some bread, they are worn out, and I'm still pursuing Zeba and Zulmana, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Zuccoth said, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zulmuna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? Then Gideon replied, Just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zulmuna into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. From there he went up to Peniel and made the same request of them. But they answered as the men of Succoth had. So he said to the men of Peniel, When I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. Naziba and Zalmuna were in Karkor with a force of about 15,000 men, all that were left of the armies of the eastern peoples. 120,000 swordsmen had fallen. Gideon went up by the route of, no- of the nomads east of Noba and Jogbea, and attacked the unsuspecting army. Zeba and Zalmunna, the two kings of Midian, fled, but he pursued them and captured them, routing their entire army. Gideon, son of Zoash, then returned from the battle by the pass of Heres. He caught a young man of Succoth and questioned him, and the young man wrote down for him the names of the 77 officials of Succoth, the elders of the town. Then Gideon came and said to the man of Succoth, here are Zeba and Zomuna, about whom you taunted me by saying, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zomuna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your exhausted men? He took the elders of the town and taught the men of Zuccoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. He also pulled down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the town. Then he asked Zeba and Zomuna, What kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. Gideon replied, those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jether, his eldest son, he said, kill them. But Jether did not draw his sword because he was only a boy and was afraid. Zeba and Zalmunna said, come do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. So Gideon stepped forward and killed them and took the ornaments off their camels' necks. The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment and each of them threw a ring from the plunder into it. 
The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Thus, Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace for 40 years. Zerub Baal, son of Joash, went back, to her, um, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son, whom he, met, who he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up, set up Baal Bereth as their god and did not remember the Lord their god, who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show any loyalty to the family of Zerubbabel, that is Gideon, in spite of all the good things he had done for them. And this is God's word. There are in our house three sets of controls which are almost guaranteed to start arguments. Uh, set of controls number one is our thermostat. Uh, one of us, every time we walk past it, feels the need to turn it up. The other one of us, every time we walk past it, feels the need to turn it down. One of us is concerned that our children don't die of hypothermia. The other one, me, is just a bit tight, tight-fisted and mean with the money. Second set of controls that will cause an argument in our household is the remote control for the television. Now, there are five of us in our house. We all have very different tastes of what we like to watch. And generally speaking, whoever gets there first puts on their program and then kind of tucks the remote control button down their sides. And we have to debate whether this is what we're going to watch. In fact, some members of my household have even gone so far as to do this. If they, if they need the toilet mid-program, they will get up, take the buttons with them <laughs> into the toilet so nobody can change over. That's disgraceful, isn't it? Third set of controls that causes disputes in our household is uh, the controls on our car. My wife and I sometimes have, occasionally... Just slightly differing opinions about uh, which is the best route to take, uh, the size of the gaps we might pull out into, how, we should, how literally we should interpret speed limits, uh, or, or what amber lights mean. I think they mean speed up. She thinks they mean slow down. I'm sure in your households too, you have these similar sort of things go on, don't you? And, and as well as the sort of the external disputes that are happening... I wonder if you sometimes find in your life too, there are sort of internal battles happening, sometimes between what's going on in your head and what's going on in your heart. So for example, uh, you might wander into the kitchen and see a beautiful chocolate cake on the side and your head thinks, I I really shouldn't. I really shouldn't. I'm just trying to to watch the calories a bit and and, it'll be teasing. I don't want to ruin my tea, but your heart thinks, but it looks so good. And I, and I want it, and I want a piece of it. Now, who, who wins? Well, perhaps to, to kind of flip it round, uh, you think of that kind of trip to the dentist. 
and, uh, and your head thinks, yeah, I know I should go. I know it's good to go for the regular checkup and make sure everything's okay. But your heart thinks, oh, I don't like the dentist. I, it's nothing personal. I just don't like lying there and having drills and pokey things put in my mouth. No. Who wins? Or maybe even more seriously, you find in life, don't you, some of those big decisions. What career might you pursue? Or what job should you go after? Uh, what sort of relationship should you be in? Where are you going to live? And sometimes you find in life you have this kind of this conflict that's going on internally between uh, what your head thinks and what your heart feels. That seems to be a fairly common and real thing for us, doesn't it? The reason I start there is because as we look tonight together at the end of Gideon's life, we see precisely this sort of conflict at work between what he knows to be sort of true in his head and what's actually going on in his heart. As we see uh, getting toward the end of Gideon's time, uh, he he really starts to, to do things which make us question, where is he really finding his strength? In chapter 6 and 7, he confesses his weakness, he finds his strength in the Lord. But by chapter 8, things start to look a little different, don't they? He, he mistreats God's people really badly in Sukkoth and Peniel. He goes after the kings of the Midianites at Zeb and Zalmunna and, and executes them in an act of revenge. And so we're kind of forced to have this, this sort of question in our minds, although although. God is still on Gideon's lips, it's not entirely evident that God is really in Gideon's heart. There's this kind of misalignment going on. And I want us really just to look at the last section of that chapter. We're not going to have time to look at verses 1 to 21, but we're going to look at verses 22 to 35 and and think about this question, how do we fight the good fight of faith when sometimes it feels like the greatest enemy is within? And so as we do that, I've got three headings for us this evening, picking up on that image of, uh, of kind of driving the car. And so heading number one is this, uh, give God the keys. Give God the keys. As we, uh, as we look down at chapter 8 and verse uh, 22, uh, we see this happening. The Israelites say to Gideon, rule over us. You, your son, your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. In other words, what they're really asking Gideon is is they're saying, you be our king. They don't use the word king, but that's what they're they're after, isn't it? You rule over us, and then your son, and then your son's son. We want a dynasty. Rule over us, Gideon. Why? Why do they want Gideon to rule? Verse 22, because you have saved us. Because, Gideon, you have saved us. That's interesting, isn't it? Do you remember yesterday's uh, reading? Let me just remind you of a few verses, chapter 7 and uh, verse 7. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you. Verse 9, during the night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. Well, verse 15, when Gideon heard the dream, its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped, went back to the camp and called out, get up, the Lord has given. What about verse 22, when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused. 
I don't know if you've, uh, you've seen a film uh, called Yesterday. It's a film about the, the music of uh, the Beatles. And in the film, uh, there's, there's a young man who finds himself, he wakes up one day to find himself in a world in which uh, people have, have never heard of the music of the Beatles except for him. And so as he starts kind of playing some of those well-known Beatles tunes, uh, people say to him, wow, that's amazing. Did you write that? He's like, well, no, it's the Beatles. Who? Never heard of them. And as he starts to play this music, his, his fame increases, his, his popularity grows. He kind of finishes the film playing at this stadium gig. And at the very end, he has this crisis of conscience. Does he, does he just carry on and take all of the adulation and all of the glory and all the fame for himself? Or does he kind of fess up and say, actually, it's not, it's not really mine at all? Gideon knows, actually, doesn't he? Gideon knows what the right answer is. Verse 23, Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Gideon knows, actually, who it is that really must rule. The Lord must rule. Gideon is is, is asking or getting to the most important question of every human life, isn't it? Who really rules in your life? I don't know if you watched uh, the the coronation of King Charles recently. I don't know if you kind of, you you watched like everything that was there, uh, whether you went and and saw it in London. I don't know whether you loved it or whether you hated it. Uh, But the the interesting thing was, as, as you watched it, unfolding, you saw kind of the ceremony and the the pomp and everything that went with it. Whether you loved it or hated it, here's the thing, it requires nothing from you. Apart from your taxes, you have to pay those. Uh, But it really requires nothing from you, doesn't it? You can watch it, you can watch the the ceremony, uh, you you can follow the news reports, it doesn't require anything from you. Not so when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, He is the one who must rule. So who really rules in your life? If you're really honest about it, I know you know the right answer in your head. Yeah, I know Jesus, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is always the answer. Remember that from Sunday school. But who, who really rules when it comes to decisions you make about your career? When it comes to how you think about relationships? When it comes to how you think about how do you use your resources, your time, your talents? your treasure, when you think about things like caring for aging parents, does, does God get to speak to that? Maybe one of the big idols of our day, I have this pet theory, one of the big idols of our day is retirement. Retirement, that's, that's that time, isn't it, where we're told, that's my time. I, I, I've given my everything to, to whatever it is for all these years now, this is mine, my time, for me to do what I want to do. Is that right? God gives us every day, every breath, if he sustains our every moment. Does, does God get to speak into your retirement and how you might use it? Does God really rule? I think for many of us, our lives are like national trust houses. You've been to a national trust house? And within a national trust house, uh, there are many beautiful, uh, presentable rooms, aren't there? You go in and everything's in order and everything's got its place. You think, oh, this looks nice. I'd like to live here. But there are those places, aren't there, which are roped off, and you, and, you, and you can't go in, but you always think, I wonder what's there. I wonder what's in that room. You know, when it comes to our lives, we, our lives cannot be like National Trust houses. 
We can't have the nice presentable bits and then other bits which we say to God, you don't get to come in here. This is roped off, God. You don't, you don't get to speak to this. This is mine. Do not enter. No, no, Gideon, Gideon knows the right answer in his head, isn't he? The, the Lord must rule. The Lord must rule. Give God the keys. But the second heading is this. Once you've given him the keys, you have to let him drive. You've got to let him drive. You see, Gideon says the right thing. He says, I will not rule. God must rule. But then he goes, to do, goes on to do some things which sort of put a great big question mark over all of that. Just four of them. Here's the first thing he does. The first thing he does is he asks for a load of money. Do you notice this? Look down. Verse 24. I do have one request. That each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. And they answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, uh, the purple garments, and so on. Now, what's he doing? It's a kind of weird request, isn't it? I won't be king, but, but you could just give me a, a load of money. It's the kind of thing an ancient Near Eastern king does is to ask for tribute from his subjects. And it's not a small amount of money. If a shekel was equivalent to roughly a day labourer's wage, well, 1,700 shekels is like four and a half years' wages. So whatever your salary is, multiply it by four and a half. That's the sort of amount of money that Gideon is asking for. It's a lot, isn't it? And what's really interesting here, for the, the sort of the alert, tuned-in reader is there's a particular phrase used here that, are, that has only been used once before in the Old Testament. It's this, this little phrase, the rings of gold. The only other time before this when someone has asked for rings of gold is in Exodus chapter 32, when Aaron asked for the Israelites to give them the rings of gold and he made it into a golden calf. And he led the people astray horribly through it. It's the first thing he does. Second thing he does is he makes this this ephod. Uh, Verse 27, Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. Now, what's an ephod? That's a fair question to ask, isn't it? There's a little picture there for you. The ephod was part of the, the priest's Garments, all the instructions that have been given to the priests in the book of Exodus and Leviticus, uh, the, the things they were to do, what they were to wear, it's all there. You can read about it in Exodus 28. And uh, the ephod is that sort of that, that gold-colored apron type thing that, that, uh, that is being worn there. That's the ephod. And on the ephod, there would have been uh, two onyx stones, one on each shoulder. And on one of these onyx stones will be carved or engraved uh, six of the tribes, six of the 12 tribes of Israel, the names. And on the other one, that will be the other six. Uh, and the kind of the symbolism is that as the priest goes in to offer worship, he's, sort of, he's bearing the names. He's bearing Israel uh, before the Lord's. Now, the interesting thing here is that at this point in Israel's history, the tabernacle was at a place called Shiloh. And Shiloh was only really about 10 miles north of Ophrah. So it isn't like, you can't say Gideon was just, you know, there was, he's like, he's doing a church plant. 
you know, it's like Shiloh's a bit far to go, so we'll, we'll put up something here that's equivalent and we'll do that. Now, that, that's not right at all. It wasn't too far to go. So what is Gideon up to? We're not quite told, but it seems possible, doesn't it, that, that Gideon is trying to centre the people's kind of life of worship around himself. Is it possible even that Gideon sees himself actually not just as the king, but also as their priest? He wants to be the leader of every part of their lives. We see the result of it. What's the result of it? Verse 27. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Second thing he does. Third thing he does here, which raises this question mark over him, is uh, is he has a lot of wives. Verse 29. Jeroboam, son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own. Why? Because he had many wives. Again, it's, it's the sort of thing a king at that time would have done. But what's interesting is in Deuteronomy 17, uh, God instructed the people. and said, if, if and when you have a king, uh, and I think, I think there's a case to be made for saying the Old Testament itself is somewhat ambiguous about whether a king is always a good idea. But if and when you have a king... Among the things they should not do is they should not acquire large amounts of gold and they should not acquire many wives. Exactly what Gideon is doing here. It's the third thing he does. And the fourth thing he does, and perhaps the clincher, is what he names his son. Verse 31, his concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son whom he named Abimelech. Now, as many of you will know, names often carry meaning in the Old Testament. So we tend to pick names, don't we, because we, we, we like the name. The most popular names of 2022 for girls, it was Sophia, which means something like wisdom. Lily, which is from the flower, meaning innocence and purity. And Olivia, which is from the, the Latin meaning peace. For boys, last year, most popular names were Liam. Uh, kind of Irish, a Gallic word for sort of protector. Uh, Noah, which means something like rest or, or comfort. And Oliver, the equivalent of Olivia. What does Abimelech mean? Some of you might know. It's kind of made up of two parts. Av, Melech, Abimelech. Av, Melech. It's a little, little Hebrew lesson for you. Av means my father. And Melech means, can you guess? King. He names his son, my father is king. That's quite an extraordinary thing to do, isn't it? Say, I don't want to be the king. And then you name your son, my father is the king. You know, when when our firstborn, when Noah was was born and we went through the names and we shortlisted them all, it was never an option. It was never on the table for me to call Noah, uh, my dad's a legend. It just, it's just, it didn't even get on the shortlist. I was mortified. That's exactly, that's exactly what Gideon does. Names one of his sons, my father is king. And so do you see there's this, this misalignment between his head and his heart? His head says, no, I know that God is the king. I know that he's the captain of the ship. I know this all from him. 
I will not rule. God must rule. And yet, there's the money. There's the, there's the ephod. There's the wives. There's the naming. Uh, I wonder if in your life there's, there's anything that you could sort of look at and say there's, there's a bit of a misalignment between what you know and kind of how you feel and then what you do. Do you know the most sobering thing for me as I studied this, preparing this? The most sobering truth, I think, in perhaps all of Gideon's life is this truth. An increase in age is no guarantee of an increase in godliness. It's possible to lose your first love. It is possible to become lukewarm. Some things do get better with age, don't they? Good cheese, good wine. Some things naturally get worse with age, don't they? Milk. And some things, it sort of depends what you do with them. I, uh, I work for a church, so it's unlikely I will ever have the means to own a nice classic car, but I'd like to. And if I could own one, it would be this one. This, for those who know, this is a Volvo P1800. You didn't know Volvo made pretty cars, did you? But there is one. Uh, This is made in the mid-60s. And if you wanted a mint condition one of those today, it will cost you about £60,000. It's a thing of absolute beauty. But how does a classic car become a classic car? Well, it seems to me it depends a little bit on what you do with it. So if you take your, your car, your classic car, and if you, if you look after it, and if you, if you cover it, and you, you keep it out of the bad weather, and you clean it, and you regularly service it, and you take it to a mechanic who knows what they're doing, well, it can get better, can't it? It can actually get better with age. But if you kind of just ignore it, you leave it out, you don't bother servicing it because it's hassle, and it's expensive, and... You don't worry about treating the rust. Well, over time, it's going to get worse, isn't it? So our spiritual lives are a bit like that. It really depends on what we, we do, what we invest. Now, look, don't misunderstand me. Sanctification is a promise. Sanctification is the work of God, but we are not sort of just passive recipients, as Jonathan was helping us think about yesterday. It's like that motor-assisted bike, isn't it? Well, are you pedaling? Or are you kind of freewheeling? Have you stopped pedaling? Are you still consciously investing in your growth? So that actually we, we learn what it means for more and more, and more our, our heads and our hearts to find alignment. Here's third and final heading. Uh, we've said, give God the keys. Let him drive. And finally, don't get out of the car. Don't get out of the car. What happens here? Well, we see what happens here. We know sooner, verse 33, had Gideon died, that the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. And they set up Baal Barith as their gods and did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them. From the hands of all their enemies on every side, they forgot God. No sooner is Gideon gone, they forget. They forget God and they forget everything that he had done for them. 
There's different ways of forgetting things, isn't there? I'm, I'm starting to find now, I don't think it's just me, that I'll walk into a room and go, and what did I come in here for? It's not just me, is it? <laughs> That's one sort of forgetting. There's another sort of forgetting, isn't there? I, I learned German at school. I did a German GCSE. To be honest, I was never very good at it. But at one time, I could, I could speak and understand a bit. But as the years went by, I just used it less and less. My, I withdrew my focus, my attention, my practice, and my devotion. And little by little by little, more and more of it I forgot. Now it's long gone. That's sort of how forgetting happens, isn't it? That's that's the sort of thing that happens here. What's really striking is this, and I have to thank Jodie for this. Jodie helped me with this yesterday. We were talking about this passage and uh, this this whole thing, forgetting, how does it happen? And and Jodie helped me. She gave me this insight. I'm going to tell you it. And you're going to think that I'm so slow on the uptake. You'll be like, Martin, you're an absolute idiot. That's, that's so obvious. Why don't you see it? But I'll share it in case you haven't seen it. Here it is. When do, his, when do the Israelites forget the Lord? Is it in bad times or is it in good times? Have you noticed the cycle of judges? Every time you get this phrase, don't you? The land enjoyed peace for 40 years. And again, the Israelites did evil. Do you see what happens? When, when it is Israel most likely to forget God? When are we most likely to forget God? Bad times or good times? Good times. The greatest threat to your spiritual growth in the next year may not be adversity. It may be prosperity. The thing which causes you to slightly withdraw your focus, attention and affection and devotion may not be suffering. It may be success. The thing that Satan may try and get you with in this next year may not be a crisis. It may simply be comfort. Are you going to go home with your antennae up? Say, actually, when times are good, that is often when we we have that greatest sense of our self-sufficiency. And God just becomes a bit like sort of the fitness coach at the gym. It's nice to have his advice from time to time, but most of the time we don't give it a second thought. They forget God, and they forget Gideon too, don't they? Verse 35, they also fail to show any loyalty to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in spite of all the good things he had done. You remember they said, verse 22, be the king. And now as his body is still cooling in the ground, they're like, Gideon, who's Gideon? And then we get the narrator's conclusion. I have to say, this slightly um, surprised me when I was prepping this. Uh, The conclusion is this, isn't it? They they forgot him in spite of all the good things he had done. I remember reading that thinking, really? Is that just, let's just just rewind. Gideon in chapter 8 has has, uh, whipped and beaten the people of Sukkoth and Peniel. Out of revenge, he's murdered the kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna. He's acquired gold and women and, and led the people astray in his, this kind of cultic idolatry. All the good things. One of the striking things I think about, the, often the narrators in biblical narrative, is this biblical narrative resists simple characterization. 
We like simple characterization. We like simple goodies and baddies. We like the old cowboy films because we knew the good guys wore the white hats, the bad guys wore the black hats. It's very easy. The Bible resists that sort of simplistic characterization. If you were to say to the narrator, is Gideon a good guy or a bad guy? I think you'd say, yeah. What about you and me? The encouragement here for us, I think, is this. God welcomes his mixed up and messed up people whose heads and hearts are often out of alignment. God loves his mixed up and messed up people. God perseveres with mixed up, messed up people. Remarkably, God uses mixed up, messed up people. There's a lovely um, hymn uh, written a couple hundred years ago uh, in the 18th century by a man called Joseph Hart. And uh, the lyrics go like this. uh, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. Let not conscience make you linger nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your needs of him. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Isn't that a great line? If you tarry, if you wait, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. And of course, all of this points us ultimately, doesn't it, to our need for a better saviour, a better deliverer than Gideon, one who can be truly the king and the priest, one who came not to be served, but to serve, one who left all the riches and all the wealth of heaven, one who was never married Never powerful, he was humbled, despised and rejected. He too was buried in a grave to be forgotten. But his tomb is gloriously empty. He is risen, he is exalted to the right hand of the Father where he ever lives to intercede for you and for me. He's a good king. He's a beautiful saviour. He's the friend of sinners. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. He's a very present help in time of need. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The final verse of that hymn I just quoted says this, and it's a great prayer, whether you can say it for the first time or the thousandth time, it's great. It says this, I will rise and go to Jesus. He will save me from my sin. By the riches of his merit, there is joy and life in him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for our Lord Jesus, our perfect king, our perfect priest our perfect saviour who laid it all aside for the saving of us. We confess 
that we are those mixed up and messed up people whose heads and hearts are often, we're like Gideon, they're not aligned, we struggle. And yet you love us, you welcome us, you persevere with us, you use us. And so help us to depend ever more on you, on the power of your spirit at work within us. That as we go from this place, as we seek to to serve you and live for you, we may say, we may pray, we may know that it is not I, but Christ in me. Amen.